Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. There's no division between inner and outer, but sometimes it's wise to close the door. (laughs) So instead of my planned talk, let's explore that. There's actually a lot there, right? There's a lot there. Maybe I'll weave that into what I had prepared. Uh, So in the morning, you know, maybe two or three days ago in the morning, remember that? Was it a long time ago? (laughs) I explored really the uh, sense of developing wisdom, if we use that word, in our practice, insight clear seeing, and looked at what that means traditionally, ways to develop it in our practice. And at the end, I pointed to some of the continuity with the opening of the heart, that practicing and exploring impermanence and dukkha as reactivity as well as uh, aspects of the self, particularly the, the what I've called the thick self. Uh, might be a better word. It's a little bit... If we say, oh, there is my thick self again, very easy for that to be a little bit judgmental or a lot, right? Yeah, I'm so thick. <laughs> right? Uh, but we looked at that and saw that uh, there's a natural opening... Uh, of the heart when we're in connection with what's painful or difficult. And it happens in very simple mindfulness, basic mindfulness. We're with, uh, I don't know, knee pain in a simple, direct way. We hang out with it, and it might open open us up to just a sense of if we're not being reactive to the sense of the vulnerability of having a body or the fact that others may have similar pain or or worse pain, very naturally. I think we know that from our practice, that being present without with what's difficult or painful or even just the fact of impermanence, which in itself isn't painful, right? Uh, Just uh, being attentive to that can open us up to uh, understanding, which brings some compassion. And there are ways that we can also, of course, develop uh, kindness and the open heart as distinct practices. And interestingly, you know, it's interesting that by and large, the practices are 
distinct and somewhat separate. Here we do mindfulness practice. Here we look at uh, impermanence and dukkha and so forth. Okay, over here. And then here we do, uh, we, we do heart practices, so to speak. We do loving kindness or compassion or uh, joy or forgiveness and so forth. So it's, it's interesting that they are uh, developed somewhat separately. Uh, and so what I want to explore this evening, and, and again, a, maybe half an hour talk, something like that, and then open it up to our discussion, is uh, you know, how we do, in general, uh, practice to open the heart, the challenges of that. And then after we've done that, how do we integrate wisdom and the open heart, right? How do those become integrated as opposed to separate? Or now I'm being wise, but I don't really have so much of an open heart. Now I have a really open heart, but I'm not very wise. Anyone know that one? <laughs> right, so we can, we can, you know, how, what are the challenges of integration? There are a lot of challenges. They're in our culture in a culture which tends to distinguish the mind and the emotions and has done so for a few thousand years. Right? And where, you know, kind of the prevalent gender conditioning is that uh, men uh, don't really develop uh, kind hearts necessarily. You know, the, you know, we can look at that because we probably, each of us have worked with that conditioning probably for a long time, right? Right? And I, I love the, that ritual from last night because in a way it's really, I, I experienced it as just being there with one's being, and it was, you know, very heart opening, right? And it's a beautiful practice in that way. So that's really um, so so central here. So we have all these amazing practices to uh, develop the kind heart, um, develop compassion. And it's been interesting to be associated with the uh, Spirit Rock uh, Metta Retreat, Loving Kindness Retreat, for uh, over 20 years, like probably since 2001 or so. And uh, I, w I was uh, mentored by Sylvia Borstein to teach Metta. It's interesting for me personally because my, you know, my own conditioning was to be kind of a thinker and a problem solver, right? And I knew that I knew there was a deep emotional nature because in high school, I would cry during driver ed movies. <laughs> Anyone else have that experience? <laughs> I did. I, I knew there was something there, but it didn't, it didn't come out so much, right? And my identity was as a thinker, and I would, 
be, you know, be a problem solver, probably conditioning much like many of us. Uh, and someone asked me uh, how I was feeling, and I would give them some thoughts, right? Right. And 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 I remember my you know my first experiences practicing metta were did not suggest that I would one day co-teach metta retreats, right? That they were you know it didn't seem to work well, and I said okay, I mean it's for other people and and so forth and. Uh, also, also, when I was first practicing, maybe like some of you have experienced, it wasn't actually taught very much. It was taught as something we did right at the end of retreats. Anyone remember that? Yeah, just at the end of retreats, we would do some kind of expansive metta and then bye. <laughs> but it wasn't taught as a regular practice, I think, until Sharon Salzberg went to Burma and studied uh, how metta was taught in Burma and brought it back and started offering retreats and... Sylvia Borstein uh, studied with Sharon and then started bringing in retreats at Spirit Rock around around 2000 or so. And I, I started being associated with it right away and I didn't particularly have a strong background in metta. It was interesting. But I, uh, but I started doing week-long retreats and then teaching them and it, it came, right? Because of course, probably like many of you, uh, I... When I probably after college, uh, I wanted to develop more of an open heart and, and manifest it. And so, you know, various sorts of things, psychological work and other things could, you know, open that up uh, starting at that time. And so we have this uh, amazing set of practices, which, which um, I, I wouldn't have known at the beginning, but I think they're somewhat unique among the world religions, right? Every world religion or most world religions have aspirations, you know, and say at the center of what we do is we lead to love or we lead to kindness, right? You know, and there are, you know, passages we can find from different traditions and maybe I'll read one or two of them. Let's see if I can find this. This is interesting. This is from the Talmud, the Jewish tradition. The highest form of wisdom is kindness. Whoa. It's probably, probably from 2,000 years ago. Right? And from the uh, mystical Jewish text uh, called the Zohar, from the Kabbalah. The world, this is, it's quoting from the Psalms. The world shall be built on love. By this, the world endures. Again, it's, I think that's from, you know, about a thousand years ago. And then probably a familiar one. Uh, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails from, from the Christian tradition. And from the Islamic tradition, 
Um, Mr. Rumi, love is the water of life. Drink it down with heart and soul. Right? And so we have that. But interestingly, I've been told by people from Christian and Jewish traditions who come to our January Meta Retreat that there's nothing in our tradition like Metta practice. The deliberate, methodical practice to open the heart. Of course, they're kind, loving, wonderful people, but they come to our retreats because there's nothing quite like it. That was a surprise to me. You know, the uh, I, I remember talking with one uh, Christian uh, nun, and I asked her, is there anything like this? And, you know, we were in a one-on-one, you know, just talking about practice, and she said, not really, well, there are the ejaculations. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what to say. <laughs> uh, but I, I just, I think I stayed quiet for a while. Uh, but I think, I think those are practices where one, where one just, you know, uh, maybe some of you know better. <laughs> Uh, there are practices where one just says, oh, the Lord is wonderful, right? And just comes out with a statement, like out of spontaneity. I think that's what they are. I didn't, I didn't research ejaculations. <laughs> so, so, so I found that interesting. And there, there are these beautiful, you know, sets of practices done in different ways. I think we know that the metta, loving-kindness, you know, again, the, the etymology of the word metta, probably many of you know, is linked with uh, words meaning friendship. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, I have a colleague, uh, Anushka Fernandopoula, says metta is what... Uh, Warm, expansive friendliness. And we train in it and we work, you know, and I think I, I talked with Richard and we thought to have our session at 7.30 tomorrow morning, have a meta session. But I'll talk a little bit about it and we'll, and probably many or most of us are familiar, but we, for those not familiar, we'll have a little bit of instruction, not, not too much. And, you know, so we work in different ways to develop uh, kindness. You know, we have the prevalent way comes from Burma, comes from the way that Sharon Salzberg learned it from Burmese teachers, the repetition of phrases uh, internally over and over again. How many have practiced that way? It's, it's, you know, it's a beautiful, effective way of practicing. And uh, we repeat... Phrases like, you know, you know, maybe in relation to another person, may you be happy, may you be safe, may you be uh, healthy or as healthy as possible, may your life unfold with ease. And we, we give the freedom for people to use phrases which are evocative for them, to not to necessarily use those ones I mentioned. Those are more conventional you know, to do something to do with happiness and safety and health and 
you know, what's called ease of well-being, which means me you know, more like equanimity. May I have ease with whatever happens. And we, you know, we do one-week retreats where people repeat those, as, as many of you know, uh, all day long, including in meals and uh, so forth, and um, informal time. And it, it, it opens up the heart, and it, it, uh, it's a form of concentration practice. So, of course, one of the challenges when people practice like that initially is just the usual one of distraction and people develop more stability and as you know and as people work they also find some people just find that the the heart doesn't open you know and since and there are all these gender dimensions to it you know we get i've been with that retreat for what 22 years in january uniformly we have 80 to 85 percent women Every year, registration completely open. Anyone can do it, and we've noticed uh, some of the younger. We've, I think, the last two years, it's gone. To the, the percentage gone down to only seventy-five percent women, and uh, there's more younger men in their twenties and thirties. I think. Do you, do you sense some shifts happening? People who know have, have contact. I, I sense some happening. And, you know, and of the, uh, the men who come, they usually fall in two categories. One is those who actually have really good access to their kind hearts and are ardent practitioners. And the other half is people who want that, but they can't, it's hard to contact maybe from all the conditioning, such as what I mentioned in my own case. And it's very poignant to work with them, right, to... Uh, just encourage them, but it's it's uh, it takes time, right? But the practices, the practices work. So there, you know, there's this challenge of sometimes just finding a difficulty of opening the heart when we, we work in this way, and um, and then you know another another challenge of the practice is that. Uh, Metta practice, more than mindfulness practice, has the dimension of what we sometimes call purification. In other words, stuff comes up a little more intensely, right? People have more intense dreams, you know, uh, old traumas come up, um, people's stuff comes up more readily. And so there's a lot going on and people think they're doing the practice wrong. And people come to me in the morning and say, last night I dreamt I was an axe murderer. Does this mean I shouldn't be doing metta? <laughs> and I tell, oh, you're right on, right on schedule. <laughs> right. uh, it's actually very poignant. People, you know, you know, family stuff comes up from childhood and so forth. And the metta, tend, like I say, tends to bring that out. It's very, you know, it's very powerful. And, but, you know, people have to work with what, what comes up. And, um, and so, but people persevere and there's kind of a, a cleansing of the heart, more openness, working with, working with that material. And they, they can come to, uh, 
really bring the heart more fully into into the daily flow, have the heart more available. Um, and there's also the form of practice uh, called uh, radiating metta. How many have had some exposure to radiating metta? Yeah. Um, generally, that seems closer to how the Buddha taught. You know, there are these passages where the Buddha, you can you can uh, see it, some of you know, probably know the Metta Sutta, the main, the discourse on loving kindness, the main text, probably many of us know that. I think where there are lines where it goes like radiating kindness over the entire world, upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, right? And there are other passages where where the Buddha says, let your metta radiate out 16 leagues to the east, 16 leagues to the west, to the north, to the south, right? And And becoming, ultimately, the practice is becoming ultimately boundless, right? And, you know, in Tibetan tradition, metta would be called one of the immeasurables. It goes towards boundlessness. And it actually is an access route to that pure awareness that we've talked about a few times, or the sense of the non-dual, that one can ap- approach that in, in with the radiating metta coming out from the heart. You know? Maybe we can, should we do that tomorrow? Okay, okay. I, I, went, I wasn't planning to, but okay. We'll, we'll do it right before breakfast, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, And so, yeah, and so there are these beautiful forms of practice. And then we know that the uh, Buddha taught metta as part of a set of four practices that bring out different dimensions of the kind heart. Uh, You know, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. These are the, in Tibetan tradition, they'd be called the four immeasurables. Uh, called the Brahma Vihara in the Pali, the you know Vihara is just the word that means home or house. And we, so the translation is usually the abodes of Brahma. Brahma is the king of the gods. So it's it's said that when we're practicing these, we are as gods and goddesses. Okay, we'll do that tomorrow morning. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and. And the practices are very similar for uh, cultivating compassion and what's called sympathetic joy, joy in the joy of others, and equanimity. You know, it's um, uh, a fourth practice. I'll come back to equanimity because that that is that is a bridge really for uh, connecting the heart practices and wisdom. I'll come back to that. Let's see where I am. Um, yeah, so maybe I can go right right to that right now. So we have these amazing practices, and one of the one of the uh, aspects of the teachings starts to connect with this question 
of how do we connect wisdom and the kind heart? Because again, we typically do metta practice separately. We do wisdom practice separately. We can see how the wisdom practices open up the kind heart in different ways. We can also sometimes see how metta or another heart practice starts to open us up to wisdom. We need, you know, just in doing the practice, we have to come back from being distracted. We come back from all the places the minds are. There's a certain amount of mindfulness gets integrated, but there's still somewhat distinct practices and they can be, uh, you know, they don't necessarily get explicitly um, integrated. And again, it can sometimes reinforce those cultural or social divisions between the emotions and, and, and the mind or the thoughts and kind of echo some of the conditioning, like the conditioning I described that I, that I had, you know, to um, primarily, you know, I'll be, I'll be a thought person, right, and so forth. So the integration is crucial. And it's also, there are also ways that it parallels a personal integration of um, our clarity, our clear thinking with our emotions and our, and our hearts, right? Which is, I think, uh, crucial in the world right now and crucial, maybe for even from an evolutionary perspective, to be whole beings, to have all these parts of ourselves available. And so this aspiration to integrate them, I think we can see in uh, some of the uh, teachings. It's, you know, it's sometimes said that the whole of the Dharma is like a bird with two wings. One wing is wisdom and one week is compassion, right? They're, they have to be connected, right? And I like very much what I learned from a, a student of mine, uh, originally from Vietnam, uh, who had left Vietnam around 1980. He had, when he, he was a senior student, is a senior student of Thich Nhat Hanh. Name, his name is, uh, Monk, he's a monk. His monk name is uh, Venerable Minduk. And his, but he also has, goes by his lay name because he, he used to teach at San Jose City College. And, he, and his, there he goes by the name, Vietnamese name, uh, Tan Nguyen. You know, Nguyen, some of you know, N G U Y E N. It's, it's the equivalent in Vietnam of Smith. <laughs> right, very, very common. And uh, he worked with me when I was teaching in graduate school, and he did his dissertation on the history of socially engaged Buddhism in Vietnam for the last thousand years. Uh, and I got to I got to learn about it, and you know, and, and share it, and you know, and he he brought me down into the Vietnamese community in San Jose, which was really a a rich experience. And he said, well, you know, some of the young people 
They won't listen to me, but they'll listen to you about Buddhism. <laughs> you know, anyway, I won't go into those dynamics, but kind, kind of, you know, anyway, just, anyway, um, what he, one thing he told me was that in the 1930s, when the Vietnamese were still, as it were, what, uh, occupied by France, right? It's still a French colony, believe it or not, you know. Um, he said that the Vietnamese modified the teachings about wisdom and compassion. And they said, we don't just need wisdom and compassion, we also need courage. And I've often thought, you know, this maybe can relate to what we'll look at tomorrow morning, that courage is like the body of the bird. And it's the body that acts in the world, right? And so it relates, I think, to... That's how I like to interpret it. Acting, courage, and so forth. Even though, yeah, interesting. Um, and so... Um, but but this tradition of seeing the, uh, these, these two uh, as one whole, or I think there's also um, a Tibetan teaching which says that the deepest teachings are of the unity of emptiness and compassion. That's a, that's a well-known Tibetan teaching. You know, that I think Padmasambhava, you know, says, you know, I teach spaciousness, which is as big as the sky. I teach kind of a vision of awareness as big as the sky. That's referring to that pure awareness. And I teach conduct or action as fine-tuned as a barley seed, right? You know, and then that's the compassion and, and action, right? And he's, you know, this is, and so they're there. So how do we how do we bring them together? And we could explore this longer, but I'll talk about equanimity as one of the ways we do this. That particularly equanimity as one of the four Brahmavihara. One of the four heart qualities, it's particularly the one which brings in the wisdom and I think integrates the wisdom with the heart. So I'll, 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 I'll end with a little bit of exploration of equanimity because it's a wonderful quality that, and just to have that, to have balance, to have uh, the ability to be with a wide variety of experiences, keep perspective, keep keep balance and so forth, and still respond. And it, it really points to also a way that the, there's a, there are two very interesting teachings that come with the Brahma-vihara, these four heart qualities. One of them is, and probably you've heard, uh, heard particularly the first one, that each of the, each of the heart qualities has what's called a near enemy. It's, it's a way that it can be out of balance unless it's uh, um, addressed, right? That, that loving kindness, the kind of the near enemy, there's a far enemy, the far enemy of loving kindness is hatred. The near enemy is something like grasping an attachment for what one loves, right? There's still some love there, but it's, you know, like in the earlier teaching, it's mixed up with reactivity. Right, and compassion—the near enemy—is said to be pity. 
right? There's a distancing from the person. There's still some compassion that gets mixed up with something distorted. And for joy, the near enemy is uh, uh, basically getting overly attached to the joy. <laughs> you know, some different words are used. What? Exuberance? It's sometimes translated as exuberance, which I think is, in English, I think that has to be qualified because exuberance isn't necessarily something negative, right? But this is pointing to something negative. So you know, I would say some kind of way we get overly identified with or, you know, I'm, I'm so joyful or something like that. Or I'm, I'm you know, I'm Mr. Joy. Um, and then the, the near enemy for equanimity is indifference, right? I'm kind of balanced partly because I'm removed, <laughs> right? And I don't really care, right? And the solution is the second teaching is that all of these four have to be intermixed. That's the beautiful teaching. That's where the wisdom and the heart qualities come together. That loving kindness, compassion, and joy are a little more the heart qualities get mixed with the equanimity. But equanimity isn't simply wisdom. You know, in, in the terms of the Brahma Vihara teaching, there in, in, the, in the Buddhist teachings, I don't want to get too technical here, but there is a teaching about equanimity that's more in the context of mindfulness and wisdom. And then there's uh, equanimity in the context of it being a heart quality, if that makes some sense. As a heart quality, it gets mixed with, the, with these uh, other three. You know, it brings in the wisdom dimension. So we have compassion, but we also uh, bring in the equanimity that sees causes and conditions. Equanimity has balance. Equanimity sees causes and conditions. It sees how something became what it is. It um, has a certain evenness in, with with everything. And, I think I, let me read, uh, I like this evenness. There's um, one of the expressions of this equanimity, I find, uh, occurs in some Japanese haiku. And so here's, um, this is Basho, the famous haiku writer from Japan, living in the 17th century, who gives what I interpret as an equanimity haiku, which expresses how he just kind of even and balanced with everything. Fleas, remember haikus are brief, so you have to pay attention. 17 syllables, right? Okay. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. That's it. Now why, why is that an equanimity haiku? Describing something difficult, but I hear non-reactivity. He didn't say, oh, I, for, you know, I forgot to get the horse a little bit away. I'll remember next time. Is that just the horse pissing near my pillow. Okay. Another equanimity haiku from, from Isa. I, I read one of his earlier with that Gary Snyder poem. And... Um, this is also involves uh, fleas. <laughs> I haven't researched enough to know whether fleas were really big at, 
in Japan, but they're in both of these haikus. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping, fleas of the house. I'm sorry it's so small, house. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping, fleas of the house. And then another one, also fleas. <laughs> now you fleas, you shall go see Matsushima, which is a beautiful place in Japan. You know, in other words, we're off on our trip. Come along, fleas. Okay. Now you fleas, you shall see Matsushima. <laughs> off we go. <laughs> So equanimity has these amazing qualities of, uh, you know, balance, evenness, a kind of uh, unshakability, right? Can be with everything and yet connected with the heart. One of the images we use is like a, a grandfather or grandmother whose heart is wide open but has seen everything, right? That's equanimity, right? wide open, wanting to help, but nothing phases that person, right? That's equanimity. And that's the kind of, and so it's a beautiful expression, particularly as a Brahma-vihara, of this uh, unity of, of wisdom and the open heart. And also because it, it integrates with the, with the uh, other qualities where it's not really developed to contend towards that indifference. And, you know, it, it, uh, the other thing about equanimity, it's not aloof. Equanimity is also responsive. You know, when I, when I uh, worked on that book, uh, The Engaged Spiritual Life, which some of you have read, uh, I interviewed a lot of spiritually grounded social activists. And I found so many of them had equanimity. Right. And you know that the, they were they could be balanced with very hard times, and yet their hearts were still there, and they were still acting. Right. So equanimity has the kind heart. It has the wisdom. It has the action. You know, which I've tended to interpret more through embodiment. So it has all all of these dimensions. So let me finish just with two things. Let me see. I have to read. Something about equanimity. Two things. Let's see if I can find this. Yeah, here, here it is. This is from uh, Nyanaponika Tara. Some of you probably know his book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, one of the early books. He was a German monk who lived in Sri Lanka. A beautiful essay uh, called The Four Sublime States, which is on the Brahma Vihara. You can find it online. Called The Four Sublime States. Equanimity is the crown and culmination of the four sublime states. That's his word for the Brahma Vihara. But this should not be understood to mean that equanimity is the negation of love, compassion, and sympathetic joy, or that it leaves them behind as inferior. Far from that, equanimity includes and pervades them fully, just as they fully pervade perfect equanimity. So it's that unity of 
the open heart and wisdom. Metta imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference, keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the needs of the world. Sympathetic joy gives to equanimity the serenity that softens its stern appearance, the smile that persists on the face of the Buddha in spite of his deep knowledge of the suffering of the world, a smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three Brahma-vihara. Equanimity, which means even-mindedness, gives to love an even unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with the great value of patience. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even unwavering courage and fearlessness. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. And again, equanimity means patience, the patient devotion to the work of compassion. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight, but it is not dull, heartless, and frigid. Its unshakable nature is not the immovability of a dead, cold stone, but the manifestation of the highest strength of the open heart and wisdom. And then I'll just end with a short passage, which is also about the open heart and wisdom. This is from the Hindu uh, sage and teacher Nisargadatta. Some of you know Nisargadatta. Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. It goes back to our discussion of the zero or the one, right? Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows. Yeah, so let's stay in silence for a minute or two. We'll go into our Dharma dialogue. It can be about anything that I just spoke about or something that's come up uh, just in the, in the retreat.
something other than what was directly talked about. That that'd be fine also. We have a good chunk of time. We'll see how we do. Uh, yeah, P- please. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the end, when you're talking about equanimity and part of your book and messaging to a social activist, uh, what came to mind for me in the Jewish tradition is the parquet abode. Mm. It's uh, it's not for you to complete the task, but to start it. Yeah. And wondering. If I never thought of it that way. So yeah, yeah. There's, that's from. Is that from the uh, comment? Is that the commentary on the Talmud? I believe so. Yeah, yeah from about two thousand years ago. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard different translations. It is not for you to complete the path, but it is not to be apart from it yeah. or, or complete the task. Something like right, that. Just because you can't complete it doesn't mean you shouldn't start it. You yeah, or continue with it. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, and so, yeah, that that could that could really reflect. It's um, you know that in a in a way is a statement that integrates wisdom and compassion, right? Because it's the wisdom that can know. You know, I could get frustrated. Oh, we're not gonna we're not gonna complete moving to uh, you know the perfect society. You know, by one hundred. Uh, you know, or I guess the, the years wouldn't be in the Christian framework goes, but let's say we, we we won't we won't complete this in a hundred years. So you know, I'm I'm out of here, right? The wisdom says that's problematic, and the compassion keeps on going, right? And and they're unified in that statement. Yeah, yeah. it can go both ways too, right? Yeah, the compassion it's motivating, and it's the wisdom that's saying. Wisdom gives perspective to keep going. Yeah, yeah, I like that. That's uh, um, yeah. Let me say one more thing, and then I'll go. But uh, you know, one of the qualities I think of equanimity and of wisdom is uh, one can see causes and conditions clearly, and sometimes one knows that um, it takes a while. You know, I, I was influenced by going to the uh, Highlander Center in um, Tennessee. Some people, Highlander Center was where Rosa Parks trained in the 1950s, maybe 1954 or 55, before she refused to get off the bus in, what, 1956, right? It was started in the uh, early 30s by... Miles Horton and one other person whose name I forget, who who just stayed with it for a little while, modeled after centers I think in Denmark, and uh, it was um, in Tennessee near I think southern Tennessee, right on the border with Mississippi, and uh, was one of the few places in the fifth forty thirties, forties, and fifties where blacks and whites could be together. And it was a major training place. Dr. King went there, Rosa Parks went there in the 50s. And um, 1960, it was burned to the ground, right? And they, within a month or two or three, they rebuilt it, you know, a different, different place near Knoxville. But I visited there a lot and was very inspired. And the reason I was mentioning it was that 
Miles Horton, the founder, and there's some beautiful videos of him. They're probably on YouTube. Really inspiring, you know. And later in his life, he uh, collaborated with Paulo Freire, you know, the educator from Brazil. And he, he titled his autobiography, The Long Haul, right, in that long-term perspective. And I was thinking of... Uh, People know the name uh, Dr. A.T. Aryaratne from Sri Lanka, the founder of the Sarvodaya movement, where they they uh, set up local community Buddhist-based social action groups, of which I think there are 15,000 of them across Sri Lanka. You know, I know in the tsunami in 2005, they had a more effective response to the tsunami than the government, right? uh, community-based. And the reason I was thinking of him was that, I don't know if this was in his writing or, you know, I, I got to know him some and did some interviews with him. And I don't know if it was from his writing or from the interview, but he said, you know, the way I see it, I have a 500-year plan for Sri Lanka. You know, it's been... You know, 500 years since there was colonial intervention. The problems that we have now have their roots over 500 years. I think it'll take 500 years to resolve them. That's how he looked at things. And he laid out, here's what we do the first 20 years, and so forth. It was quite something. So that's something about equanimity as well, that the sense of uh, causes and conditions now, I guess that's what Neonaponic, what Tara was talking about with patience, right? Pa you have, do you have 500 year patience? <laughs> uh, of course, of course uh, I don't know if we have 500 years with the climate issues, but uh, the, that's another story. Sorry, yeah. but then again, the stream the 500 years. Michael Horton was, Miles Horton was here in the United States. He was. Was there another name of these? Maya, the doctor. Yeah, Sri Lanka. Oh, uh, Dr. Ari Ratni. Thanks. Yeah, uh, A R I Y A R A T N E. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful film about Highlander Center called You Got to Move. Yeah. Yeah. It's very inspiring and. Uh, you can still visit there, and they, I visited there, and they have an amazing uh, video library. I, I, visit, I visited there a few times and uh, uh, just would stay and look at the, the, their videos. And these days, probably quite a lot of them are public, but yeah, um, yeah, still going strong. Yeah. So thanks for your patience. <laughs> As you stated, we have practices specifically for wisdom cultivation as well as compassion cultivation. Um, but do you have any creative practices or ways to tweak the traditional practice we already have to help with the integration between the two? Where do we, how do we bring them together? Are there specific practices? Um, yeah, my, my sense is that they can obviously open to each other in ways I've described. Uh, I, think, I think we can do it. I think we can innovate maybe in pretty, maybe obvious ways, right? And I'm thinking out loud. Tomorrow after breakfast. 
What? I think we're packing a little bit into breakfast, but uh, we don't want to get it too full before breakfast. Okay. Um, that was that was a that was a joke that came from my father. <laughs> my father was a punster, and we sit around the table. And how many? Probably some of you had. Father or mother like that, they would sit around the table and go, oh. <laughs> right, so, um, yeah, but I think, I think it's actually, it's a, it's a wonderful question because it's really inviting creativity, right? And so if I, thinking, if I think out loud right now, uh, how would we do that? Um, one way is to, um, you know, practice them in succession. I'm thinking, I'm thinking out loud. We can, so I, I often like to have people practice metta, maybe to start a session, and then go into a wisdom practice. So the, you know, one teacher, Tibetan teacher I studied with, Mingyur Rinpoche, he said, when you practice, uh, when you do two practices in relative proximity to each other, they tend to mingle. <laughs> And so one way would be to uh, practice metta for 10 or 20 minutes and then maybe, or core compassion, and then look at impermanence. That's one way. Uh, I think there would also be ways, and maybe more what you're pointing to, where they're explicitly connected within the same practice, right? Mm -hmm. And what would that look like? I think you, you could probably think out as well as me, if I, because I'm, and maybe I've done this in the past, I'm not sure I'm remembering, but it could be something like I, um, maybe uh, draw attention. I think I probably do this in some of the work I do with transforming the judgmental mind, where we bring in, you know, where we deliberately go into a certain territory, maybe where there's something that's hard or painful. Like, okay, let's go into, you know, a judgment which had some energy in the last week. Maybe a self, let's say a harsh self-judgment. Go into that. Study it with mindfulness, right? And um, and now... um, you know, see in holding with mindfulness whether compassion arises. And maybe let's bring in compassion to help hold it, something like that. Um, another, another way, you know, again, I'm thinking out loud, but this, this actually is even getting more at what you're inviting, might be that I do a sequence, a practice, where first I ground in, let's say, metta or, let's say, compassion, metta or compassion. And then I ground, let's say, then I have a period of time where I practice, um, let's say, mindfulness, um, yeah, yeah, Let's say where I practice mindfulness, and and maybe maybe bring up some challenging experiences, 
And then, then I say, okay, now I want you to uh, practice, you know, invite, practice mindfulness that is not separate from compassion. Something like that. You know, what does that look like? You know, again, it's, it's, it's um, I think we can, even though the language makes it sound like we're glumping things together, my sense is the experience might be a little more integrated, right? Because it's really about, can I have my wisdom and my open heart present at the same time? And we know that we can do that. Anyone of us who've, who's listened to a friend, right, in distress, and many of us here are in the helping professions in different ways, we listen and we can understand causes and conditions, and there's also empathy and compassion, right? And so, you know, uh, so it, you know, again, I'm think totally thinking out loud. It may one one of the forms might be more, a little bit more, even in uh, interpersonal relationships where we're listening to someone's story, and we very naturally bring in both our understanding and empathy and compassion. That's, that sounds, I hadn't had that, those thoughts before, but that sounds like it's getting closer, doesn't it? Like that it might especially take place in those kind of settings. How does that sound? I, I love it. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. I think, yeah, you know, because empathy and compassion with another, I think is dependent also on understanding, which could come through understanding causes and conditions, histories and so forth. Yeah, beautiful question. It's really brought out creativity. Yeah, Richard. Uh, I was exposed to this idea of meta at GBF and various other places. But there's always like, like, let's just do a little meta for five minutes. And I'm a really pragmatic guy. And I thought, well, that's all great to be wishing that. But the GBF board got together and came up with this idea of GBF cares, where someone could post you know, that I'm having a knee operation, whatever it is, and they're letting people know this is the situation. People are very reluctant to, to ask, will you help me? But once you're aware of the problem, I, mean, I think it's been very successful. Yeah. Those people who are interested in stepping up, step up. Yeah. I think it's made a huge difference. And also the idea of taking refuge in the Sangha, to me that's very abstract. It's like, I'm going to bring you some chicken soup. That's, you know, that's much more yeah. So just... Yeah, I think that's 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 this parallels what I was just suggesting in some ways that we know the situation, our wisdom as we knows the need, and we um, there's a, can be a natural compassion and in the form of action which arises. Yeah. 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 Please. Yeah. I was also thinking, I mean, one of my favorite times to practice is when my heart is really open. Yeah. And like when you were talking earlier about crying during a, a you know, during a movie or something, I, I noticed when I do that, that's a really rich time to really pay attention mm. to what's happening in my body. Yeah. And and what what the, it's not only the physical reaction, but where the emotion goes, and sort of examining where it came from and yeah. what what what's happened and. To me, when you first started talking about this, I, I I first went to the thing was the heart has the wisdom. I don't I don't see him as being separate. But after you talk, I understand the separation you're talking about. But the wisdom's in the heart. 
Yes. And in those practices, inherently, in, in some way, the way I've experienced it in some way. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of more, the, the, the separation's more in the conditioning. Right. Right, and the, that, I think that's what, um, you know, when we go back, go, go to that larger vision of pure awareness, or, you know, it's, I think in its maturity, it's also has the quality of, of uh, love or metta. Right, and it's it's integrated. Even though, as I mentioned, some of us may come a little bit more through the doorway of wisdom, and others more through the doorway of the heart. But uh, you know, to me, it's an aspiration to have them be both felt and then also embodied. You know, but something, yeah, it's something that like I think you're giving really a good, it's another practice really, which is when, you know, my heart is opened up for whatever reason, let me be with it. And we could even, you know, as part of the process, notice the wisdom as well as the heart energy. Right. right? And see how they're connected. Because there's, there's often connection and yeah. um, uh, engagement and it, it, it just seems... And the, 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 the self um, dissolves in, in hmm. a little bit or something. Beautiful, yeah. 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 Well, or chitta, right, is, is also translated as heart or mind. Uh, chitta. Chitta, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some, some of the problems are with these translations. Um, the word, uh, you know, even uh, mindfulness isn't, isn't good as a translation. Uh, just to be clear. <laughs> Okay, Donald, Donald comes out after you had asked me to be with his teacher. Mindfulness not good. What you retreat? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but as a translation, it's problematic, right? Because as you were pointing out, the word uh, basically in the Pali language and Sanskrit, uh, they don't uh, carve up experience in the same way we do. You know, in the West, probably since Plato, it's basically three three parts. It's um, you know uh, the more mental, rational, the emotions, and the body, right? and that's more or less the way it is. Sometimes we go to just mind and body, but it's mostly the three. You know, and and whereas in Buddhist tradition, it's two. It's more or less uh, citta and kaya, kaya's body, and chitta, we would translate as mind and heart, or something like that, mind and emotions. There actually is no word in Pali or Sanskrit which translates as emotion directly, believe it or not. And so, there's a, you know, there are a lot of, that sets up a lot of translation issues. And so, mindfulness isn't good, it should be mind, heart, bodyfulness, <laughs> which, I, I don't think we'll catch on. <laughs> but then even uh, uh, chitta, you know, we could translate as mind and heart or thoughts and emotions. But if you look to the actual translations, even I think Bhikkhu Bodhi generally does a really nice job of translation. He's the main you know, translator of the 
Buddha's discourses, but he translates citta as mind. That is not helpful in in our context. It it's confusing for people, you know. And so every time you see mind in the translation, you have to read in thoughts and emotions, you know. Or you know, even comes up like the third foundation of mindfulness. Again, even you saying mindfulness, getting into the problems, but you know. Uh, uh, mindfulness in relation to citta is translated as mindfulness of mind. It's going to have a lot of misleading connotations in English. Right? People think, but I, so I don't even go there. I, I talk about mindfulness of thoughts and emotions, more accurate. So, yeah, there are those, those issues. Yeah. Sorry for the scholarly digression. Yeah, yeah. Please, hi, Lee. So I, I wanted to ask about a, another tradition oriented towards healing the world and, and the anger and hatred that you know we find around us in, in daily use, and, and whether there was an analog in Buddhism, which I, I think there perhaps is, uh, and I don't know if you happen to be familiar with it. It's called appreciative inquiry. Called what? Appreciative. Inquiry. I think I have I have heard of that. I don't I don't think I know it well, but it's uh, yeah it, it rings a bell. described as looking for what's right. Oh yeah. Or what's beneficial rather than what's wrong, and perhaps it relates to generosity. It comes out of David Cooper writer at Case Western Reserve that sort of where it was arose, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think. I think I have some acquaintance with it, but the the larger point is really, um, yeah, is being you know cause it's it's really kind of in the face of what what the neuroscientists call the negativity bias, right? That tends to go to the problem, right, right, and not seeing the positive. So that could be a dimension of wisdom where we, knowing our conditioning, we ask our, to correct. When we're identifying causes and conditions, look towards the positive as well as the uh, the negative, so to speak. Not just focusing on the reactivity, but look for the resources of care and love and so forth. And that, that could be... Uh, yeah, that that's a way of getting at the integration we're talking about just in looking at the world, right? You know, I mean, the positive are going to be not not just the heart qualities, but other qualities as well. Um, I think that's so crucial and so necessary. I mean, I'm I'm just very aware how that's hard for so many activists, right? And I think, understandably, because of the uh, the levels of pain, you know, tend to focus on the problems and the histories, and not so much on uh, um, the possibilities. And you know, it can lead to people being very much um, negative about even. What's possible? And you know, social I, media what? Can, perhaps social media amplifies it. Yeah, can amplify it. And I, you know, I'm, 
I'm giving a lot of attention to uh, Israel-Palestine and, um, you know, uh, I can see that focus on the negative, particularly where you focus, okay, this is oppression or this is wrong or this is horrible or this is, you know, unacceptable or whatever. That's important, of course, but, you know, I'm, I'm in touch with uh, friends in the... Uh, in Israel, who are Buddhist teachers and also activists. And I hear amazing stories that are, unfortunately, they're a little bit more now like uh, candles in the, in the dark, right? They, but, uh, you know, like one good friend uh, even in the last week is going every day into the West Bank with a number of Israelis and continuing what they've been doing for 10 years, which is helping their Palestinian friends with the olive harvest, even right now, and holding all the pain together in solidarity, right? That is, um, I would love to, the newspapers to have that on the front page, right? Because yeah, that's, for me, it's that which is actually hopeful and will actually lead to a true uh, resolution, right? Shared, sharing the pain, solidarity, a vision, you know, a vision of peace and collaboration. So. There's a gorgeous book by Colin McCann called Paragon. I think it's the name of it. It's about, based on the true story of the friendship of a Palestinian and Israeli men, both of whom have daughters killed in uh, yeah. violence. And um, they tour. Um, anyway, I highly recommend it. Cole McCann is a fabulous writer. Which, uh, was Cole that? McCann. Yeah. Uh, Paragon. Yeah. And, and there, there, was, uh, there have been films based on that work. Is that true? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's, there's an organization called Families of the Bereaved. And they, you know, Palestinian, Israeli, they do collaborative work together, and they made a film about their work, which is quite, quite powerful. And so those are, you know, I'm highlighting those in this and in, in our world now, because those are, I think that's very much what, what Lee was pointing to. And, you know, it's in terms of quantity, it's small. In terms of uh, importance, it's big. Yeah. Hmm. It gets back to the Perkei abode. Hmm? It gets back to the abode. Yeah. 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 Each little task. Matters. Yeah. Yeah. My friend uses the metaphor of uh, a candle in the dark and keeping the candle going. And yeah, if you'd like, I could uh, share. Maybe we could have a an email go out after our retreat because they, they are posting uh, accounts of their work and images and they have, uh, I think it's, they're using, I think they used to use Instagram but it's a little bit less uh, secure these days and I think they're using a new social media forum called Signal. Oh, yeah, that's been around for a while. Yeah, yeah. Which I could not... <laughs> access on my computer. My computer says 
We do not recognize. <laughs> we, or we won't go there. Anyway. That would be great. Yeah, we, we, can, we can send out some resources. Maybe, maybe like even some people are collecting the names of some of the uh, authors of the quotation, like that one, the beautiful, like, Neonaponicatera, the four sublime states. We can send out a list. You know, some people have been collecting those. The four sublime states? The four sublime oh, states. Sublime states. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you say uh, sub blind? <laughs> I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. 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 We're getting towards our time. Uh, you know, how are we doing in terms of the day? How many people are a little tired now? Okay. Yeah. We don't have any more. If we don't have any more sharing, we could just sit for five minutes and finish. Does that sound good for right now? Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers, so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.